0: It's always a risk when I give a talk on a subject which someone just tells me one minute before coming in here. But it's also more interesting for me, if you can imagine I've been in Perth now for 22 years or more, roughly about 22 years. And so I've talked on every subject I can think of in 22 years, so it's wonderful when someone gives me a subject which I haven't thought of yet. And even though it's completely unprepared, there is the underlying themes of Buddhism which you can apply to these interesting questions to actually to bring out some themes which other people don't bring out. The question which somebody asked me just a minute before I walked in here for the meditation was to please explain the Buddhist response to social injustice and other injustices in the world. How should you, if you are a Buddhist, respond you know, to such things as wars, exploitation, paedophilia, domestic abuse, economic abuse, or whatever else there is which is uh, perceived to be an injustice? And it's sometimes something which concerns people. What should you do as a Buddhist? So that's the topic of this talk this evening. But I did. <coughs> I uh, say that I was going to talk a little bit at the beginning about the injustice of my trip to Bali last week. Because what I was in, it was only one night, it was a lot of suffering for me. It was some of the most dukkha, there's a part of for suffering, which I've had in a long while. And the reason was, was that I was giving a talk in Bali, and uh, just uh, one night, but the people were so kind, they found a Buddhist who owned a resort by the beach in Bali. So they put me up overnight in this, fu- this cottage, on this five, st- it was the best cottage in the whole five star retreat, next to the beach. So there I was, a monk, with my own private swimming pool, <laughs> which I could not use. Oh, the suffering. (laughs) There in my well-appointed bathroom was a spa bath, a jacuzzi, which I could not use. (laughs) And then there was a big plasma screen TV, (laughs) which I could not turn on. And there's this wonderful beach just within, no, one minute walking distance from my door which I couldn't go to. Oh, it was so much suffering putting a monk in such luxury. <laughs> and it was so unjust that I had the chance and I couldn't enjoy it when you don't have the chance and you would enjoy, <laughs> enjoy it, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm used to such suffering as a monk. <laughs> But getting to more, that's only just a bit of fun and games to start off the talk, just to get you interested. But the more serious topics, because that's only just a tiny little thing, there are some injustices in this world which are far more serious than a monk not being able to enjoy the swimming pool, the jacuzzi or the plasma screen TV because of his rules. There are far more difficult things which we see either on the media or which we experience in our own lives and sometimes they hurt us very deeply and we think, this is unjust. What should we as a Buddhist do about this? One of the first things I will mention is that sometimes we have to be very careful of understanding Buddhism properly. Sure, the Buddha actually said that we do have this first noble truth, that life is not perfect, never will be perfect, which is why he called life is suffering. And there is an essential, lack of perfection in the human existence. It's just because of the nature of human beings who have like desire, greed, uh, ill will and anger, that it's part of being born as a human being, that injustice will exist. However, some people stop there and think that okay, the life is suffering, people have just got to accept it, therefore we should do nothing but of course that is completely misrepresenting the Buddhist attitude. Sure there is the first noble truth of life is suffering, but there's the other three noble truths as well, to understand why, and that there's an end of suffering, and the way leading to the end of suffering, and to put forth right effort to lessen the suffering in the world, and also lessen your own personal suffering. So sure we can accept that this is the way things are, but. It also is uh, incumbent on us to try and do something, if at all possible. So as a Buddhist, it's not that we just sit there and meditate and say, may all beings be happy and well. It means when we get out of the meditation, we try and make that wish a reality by seeing how in our lives we can increase the well-being of other beings, to lessen their suffering in whatever ways we possibly can. But however, some people go too far on that direction, just thinking to try and help all other beings, without understanding just the full picture of what is going on. And One of the first things which I want to bring out here is what I call sometimes the Misperception of injustice, because a lot of times we think it 's unjust it 's unjust it 's unjust without seeing the bigger picture, and very often what at first sight you think is an injustice when you see the bigger picture, it is quite just and the classic story to actually to illustrate this is one of the stories in my book, and it was a story of this prisoner who I've been teaching meditation to for many months and after one class he asked for a personal private interview which I gladly gave him and at his private audience with me he sort of told me that the crime for which he'd been put in jail for he did not commit, he did not do that robbery, he was innocent he said to me. And he added that, Ajahn Brahm, I know that all prisoners in this jail are big liars and I lie as well, but I would not lie to you. Now, Please, honestly, I didn't do that crime. And the way he said it and the situation in which he said it, I believed him. That There was an injustice, someone who'd been put in prison for a crime he didn't do. And I'd been visiting prison long enough to know that the uh, ability for the prisoners to use the telephone to contact lawyers to sign right an injustice was so limited. I thought, hang on, he can't do very much, but I can. I know lawyers. I can get some funds together. I can, you know, make his this injustice my cause. I can help somebody. So I started thinking very quickly of all these people I could contact to try and right this injustice, to get him a retrial, an appeal or something, because I'm sure he was telling the truth, it was a crime which he did not do. But as I was thinking, he interrupted me, and with a cheeky smile, like some of these older prisoners have, he said, yeah, I did not commit that crime for which I've been put in jail, but he said, There are so many other burglaries I committed where I wasn't caught. I guess this is fair. (laughs) 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 So it was true, he did do that cry for which he was put in jail, but he did many other crimes where he wasn't put in jail. So, it was fair after all. And that got me thinking about the whole perceptions of injustice in this world. How many times have you not been caught by the speed cameras? (laughs) But do you ever think, it's not fair, it's unjust, I was speeding but I wasn't caught. (laughs) And there are other times when you you are caught, I was only doing one kilometer an hour over the limit or whatever it is. You find it in Buddhism, they have this fascinating idea of the law of karma. It's a sort of, natural writing or levelling of the injustices and unfairness of our world. And it's a fascinating thing to actually to contemplate just how karma works. Even today there was a bit of conflict in our monastery amongst a couple of young monks. There is always in any community some conflict. And I was telling one of them today, he said, look, it doesn't matter what that monk said or did to you, Now, if he has really abused you, misbehaved, that's his bad karma. Why are you allowing another person's bad karma to make you upset and unhappy, even angry, even losing sleep? It doesn't make much sense when you look at it that way. Why do we always allow other people's bad actions to control or rather prevent our happiness? So I told him, whenever there's a conflict like that in a monastery, your job, your responsibility, if you can't stop, is at least don't get angry and don't allow injustices or perceived injustices in the world to make you angry seeking revenge and making the matter a huge amount worse. As the Buddha said many, many times, that hatred never ceases through hatred. Injustices are never righted by hatred or by aggression or violence. That just makes more injustice in the world. So the first thing is that perceptions of injustice should never be fought with more actions of injustice, more violence, more aggression. So if someone misbehaves, first of all, you keep cool. Now this was actually such a strong message in Buddhism, that there is one sutta which is so powerful, sometimes it just makes revenge completely untenable by anybody who is a real, true practicing Buddhist. It's so famous in Buddhism that many people know, it's called the Simile of the Saw. Where the Buddha said, especially to his monks, but this applies to anybody, he said, monks, if anybody, a group of bandits or whoever holds you down, and saws off your arms and legs with a hand saw, slowly, to torture you, for no reason. If monks, you entertain one thought of ill will towards your torturers, towards your abusers, you are not a disciple of mine. That was such a powerful statement by the Buddha. He said, even if people are torturing you, inflicting such pain, such deadly pain, for no reason, then he said, there is never any justification for ill will to your torturers. He said, give them metta, loving kindness instead. Now of course that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But the point was, the Buddha said, no justification can there be for this ill will, for this revenge. Now of course those people who are in Areas where you're fighting for social justice, there or other uh, trying to solve other injustices in the world, you're often confronted with situations where you are almost incited to violence, which is why that there is training, as far as I know, given to social activists to be non-violent, to actually not to give violence to violence. and It must be, I remember when I was a student and very socially active and trying to right the wrongs of the world, because I was compassionate, I was not just a Buddhist who sat meditation, I wanted to do something for the world. But of course I was in demonstrations which turned violent and that actually turned me off the whole social activism business. Because as soon as there is violence there, or anger, it just, the whole goal of your social activism becomes lost. It's one of the poems which I remember, written by William Blake, a stanza of which goes, that vengeance to the tyrant fled, and caught the tyrant in his bed, and slew the wicked tyrant's head, and became a tyrant in his stead. It was written in 1600 and something by the very perceptive and spiritual, mystical William Blake, who also did these amazing paintings as well. I was really into William Blake when I I was a student. But it really showed me that sometimes if you are in the business of trying to address the wrongs of society, you have to be very careful that you at least have an inner training so that you do not become the tyrant who you depose. And the story of social activism in especially our western world, eastern world is the same, is a story of kind-hearted, good-hearted people who really want to help the world, who get in positions of authority and power and become tyrants themselves, who misbehave themselves. So the first thing is Buddhist social action. You have to really train yourselves very well not just in meditation, but in these beautiful, powerful Buddhist attitudes, where people can abuse you, they can hurt you, they can even kill you, but you will not entertain any thoughts of revenge or giving violence back. It's a tough ask, but it can be done, it is being done by Buddhist activists you don't allow the bad karma of other people to upset you. Because what happens, someone does bad karma and we have this terrible uh, dysfunctional response of human beings of wanting revenge. They hurt me, I've got to hurt them back. But as a spiritual person, whether you're a Buddhist, a Christian, a Muslim, whatever, The punishment bit, if you're a Buddhist, the punishment is done by karma. You do not have to be the agent which punishes the other person. You can let it go, if someone's done that bad thing, karma will look after it. And if you're a believer in a God, Allah or um, God or Jehovah or whatever, they will look after punishing them, no one gets away with anything as I've mentioned before in the talks, if you don't believe in karma, you don't believe in any God, then you know if you act inappropriately, if you hurt other people, you get these terrible psychological problems which you will have to pay a lot of money for a psychotherapist or psychologist to treat for many, many years. You don't get away with it anyhow. So never allow other people to control your happiness. Lesson number one. Lesson number two in activism for Buddhism is actually to see whether it really is an injustice there, because sometimes the bigger picture, and you know, sees that it's just like a balancing of nature. So we have to see you now: is it really an injustice? Sometimes we have the idea of poverty as being an injustice. And I remember just being in places like northeast Thailand as a young monk, which I've talked about in many talks, 32 years ago, this was an area of Southeast Asia where no electricity had come, there was no roads, and no western powers had taken over that country. It was like a natural, undisturbed, primitive culture. Sure they were poor, but my goodness, they were happy. And then all these aid organisations came into that area, and they stuffed up their happiness. Basically, I remember one of the old villagers who was actually a very close disciple of Ajahn Chah. If any of you have ever seen that video, which was done by the BBC, I think on the I call it the Mindful Way, I think it was called, when they went to. Um, the monastery in Thailand and they did some interviews sort of uh, you know, with Ajahn Chah. There was one man who was interviewed on that, his name was Paul Am. Um. When I saw him just before he died, because I knew him really well, and I was just chatting with him, he was the medicine man of the village, the herbal doctor and he was very, very well known you know, in the whole area. And One of the things he said to me just a few days before he died, he said, you know, before they built the hospital, people were much healthier. It was only after they built the hospital that people started getting sick. <laughs> there's a fascinating saying which just came out of the blue from this old man who's, who was at the end of his life. And sometimes do, does our so-called development create the problems? You know, when we look at sort of poverty, I was born in a poor home. My parents were very poor simply because my father was sick for most of his life. So you know, he couldn't really hold down a job all the time and uh, I was very fortunate, I was very clever, it was through scholarships, I got, went to a good school and went to a good university. Not because my father could afford to pay the fees, they were all paid for by the local council. But I remember just going to this really good school, and it was a good school. Many actually famous people. I only found out recently that like Hugh Grant went to that school as well. And one of my one of my schoolmates at the time wasn't very close, but you know you play soccer with him. Was uh, you know him now as Manuel from Forty Towers? <laughs> Andy Sachs. He was in the same year with me at this school. And I don't want to sort of spoil it all, but. Manuel, he was not from Barcelona. <laughs> he was from Chiswick. <laughs> well, he speaks with this, this really good English BBC accent. As soon as he left school, he was working for the BBC, and later on, sort of got the job as Manuel in Forty Towers. But okay, it was a very good school, and some some of the wealthy kids there could actually dress really well, but I couldn't, you know, because my parents were poor. So, I would go to school in much worse clothes than many of the other students. And I thought that was really unjust and unfair as a young boy growing up. But I realized just how useful that was now. Because even now I wear clothes which are much worse than anybody else in this room. <laughs> so, this was a training for my later life to learning how to live with poverty. <laughs> so, it was a wonderful gift that I came from a poor family. If I came from a very rich family, it would be very difficult to be a monk. So what I first thought was an injustice, now looking back upon it it was a wonderful opportunity for me, which I wouldn't have missed. Now isn't this sometimes what what we think is unjust, when you think why did it happen to me or why does this happen to other people? Sometimes we only see a portion of the picture. When we see the bigger picture, then maybe there is a sense of justice there. Because we've got to get the value system right before we see what's just and what's unjust. You know what's life all about? People think it's unjust because they don't get as much money as the CEO does. But do you really want so much money? <laughs> if you do, you've been crazy. You didn't listen to the talk I gave last week. Too much money. There was actually an article somebody gave me. Some research showed that in the United States, that people get to their happiest when on about $50,000 a year. So if you get less than that, actually, you know, you're quite unhappy. If you get more than sort of 50000 then there's no increase on in your happiness at all. In fact, there's more problems. They found out like 50000 is the best level. Now what that means is if there's anybody in this room earning more than $50,000. We can help your happiness (laughs) by encouraging you to give the difference uh, into the donation box of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Thereby lowering your income to the optimum level for happiness. (laughs) I got the article in Bodhidana Monastery, that's what it said anyway. (laughs) But the trouble is, we sometimes think, you know, these silly things. It's unjust because I don't earn as much money. It's unjust because I haven't got a plasma screen TV. Now, a lot of you sometimes think that way. Now, that you should take that away. That's got nothing to do with justice or injustice. But where we do have justice and injustice, and where we do have real exploitation, which really harms and hurts another human being, And sometimes you see this, whether it's in paedophilia, domestic abuse, whether it is exploitation of people in third world countries, who are made as even kids to work hard, or children being forced into armies. Now that is an injustice. And so we have to see what, not just say that that's the way the world is, you can't do anything about it. We have to find ways, if we possibly can. But Whenever you see any injustice, anything wrong, the Buddha actually said, you have to do a checklist before you try and do something about this. What the Buddha actually said to his monks, he said, if any monk is doing anything wrong, before you go and interact and try and tell them what they're doing, you should check many things, first of all. One of the first things you should check are you doing anything just as bad or even worse? So before you go and write injustices with other people, what other people are doing wrong, what are you doing wrong? And make sure that you have got a moral strength, a virtuous lifestyle, the inner sort of integrity, so you can stand up and fight injustice without other people can say, well what about you, what are you doing? And this was the first thing the Buddha said before any monks would tell anyone else what they're doing wrong, please look at your own conduct, first of all. because It just does not work, you haven't got the strength to fight injustice when you are acting unjustly yourselves. Number one. And number two, is once you checked out that you're, you got your own act together, Number two, to make sure you never act out of ill will, out of anger. It is so easy for people when you see injustice, as I said earlier, they get so angry, this is not right. But the anger doesn't solve the problem, it just makes the problem worse. A good example, as you all know, is the Muslim response to those cartoons. I mean, it was obviously an injustice and not a good thing to do to offend anybody else's beliefs especially in a sensitive area but it doesn't make the matter better when we get anger and you know that's an example of some things where we do sometimes you know our husband sort of comes home late or has been with another woman or your wife is you know playing around with someone else or whatever it is is Happens in the world, or your boss doesn't pay you the right amount, anger just makes the matter worse, and you get domestic violence sometimes, beatings, up even killings, because of such anger. That's a hard one, but at least Buddhists say no anger is ever justified, and we have these techniques to lessen the anger. One of those techniques, which somebody asked me about earlier on this week, they had a uh, someone at work. Actually, wasn't it? Uh, this was in Bali at the question time after the talks. They asked me they had a boss at work who was just really nasty to her, and they really badly sort of abusing her. And it wasn't right. What should she do? And it's the old a uh, method of spreading loving kindness but at a distance. What that really means is when you are not in front of that monster, when you're at home, safe, relaxed, when there's no problem, then is the time to spread loving kindness to that person. It's impossible to spread loving kindness when the object of your anger is right in front of you. Because your old habits, your old responses will come up. You see this person has abused you, you want revenge, it's your habit. But when they're not there, when you're at home a long way away, in the temple here or whatever, you feel safe, a little bit of loving kindness and then visualize them, think about them. You'll find then you may be able to spread loving kindness towards them. For those of you who have a hard time even doing that, you've got to think of some redeeming quality in that person, in order to spread loving-kindness. The old the brick wall, which you all know, two bad bricks, if you only see two bad bricks, you want to destroy it. You have to see the other good bricks in the wall, to be able to have a sense of forgiveness, to be able to have something to put meta towards, loving-kindness towards. When you're right in front of that person, all you can see is the terrible things they did, or are doing right now. When you've got some perspective, you're away from them, you may be able to see something else. It's a simile of the hand. My famous simile of the hand, how big is my hand? It's so big I can't see any of you. All I can see in the whole universe is my hand. The point is, my problem is lack of perspective. I'm holding the problem too close to me. That's why I can't see anything else. I put my hand where it really belongs, at the end of my arm, I can see my hand, I can see all of you as well. I can see things other than my hand. When you've got your boss or your enemy right in front of you, that's all you can see. You can see they're bad things, you can't see anything else, therefore you can't forgive, you can't give loving kindness, that's the problem. When they're away, you're at home, sure you can remember them, but you can see something more. When you see something more, then you can spread loving-kindness. When you can spread loving-kindness at a distance, when you're with them, you can react in a different way. One of my disciples in Sydney, she told me that she'd been hearing these teachings and she trained herself with loving-kindness, that was her meditation. And she became so good at it that she was a business woman, she'd got like a clothing um, company, she imports clothing from overseas. She went to London on business to try and do this deal with a big company which had a notoriously aggressive and uh, completely insensitive boss. A man of course. (laughs) I shouldn't say that, sorry. (laughs) So when she arrived, jet lag, tired, and she went into this meeting the other director said, "It's a waste of time you coming in here." He's in a bad mood. He's already shouted at people today, so you have got no hope. So you know, she come all the way from Sydney, all the way to London, not doing, trying to do this business deal. So she told me because you know it was one of those experiences which really showed her the benefit of these sorts of practices you do in this temple. She did some quick loving kindness to the guy. He wasn't in the room yet, so it was pretty easy to do. And she spread loving kindness for five minutes. And then he came in, so she had to stop. And he came in and said something like, What do you want? And straight away, it was spontaneous, she said. She never thought about it. She looked at him and said, Well, you know, you've got such wonderful blue eyes, just like my baby daughter. <laughs> and this executive, he just melted and within a few minutes they had the contract signed and the other directors asked, how do you do that, how do you do that, tell us how you do that. And <laughs> <laughs> It was com- completely spontaneous, it just came because she had made loving-kindness her attitude of mind before the guy came in, instead of fear, instead of control, instead of you know, anger or whatever. And So when she had loving-kindness in her eye, in her mind, just straight away something kind, a bit of praise, actually just came straight out spontaneously. And because it came from her heart, spontaneous, it went into the executive's heart and he melted straight away. And because she had this wonderful relationship from the very beginning with this guy, someone was being kind to him, no worry with the contract. So it's amazing just how you can actually stop these aggressive situations getting into sort of anger or arguments, if you really have trained in how to have loving kindness, this good will towards other people. And this is so important if you're trying to write social justices, to equip yourself, not with ill will, but with the power of kindness. And the other thing which the Buddha said, which is a fascinating powerful thing. This was in the Aranavibhanga Sutta, the Sutra of non conflict, where the Buddha said, If you are criticising, never criticise a person, but criticise a thing. You never say you know the, the Jews in Israel are terrible because they built this big wall separating you know, their community from the Palestinians, they have taking the Palestinians' land. That will just get up the nose of the Israeli government and they will just create sort of fear, anger back. That is not the way, the Buddha said. You never criticize the person or the people. You only focus on the act. He said in this sutta, specifically, he said, what you say is it is wrong to seize people's land unfairly. or even not wrong, he had this other beautiful word, it is unskillful. So straight away when a person hears it's unskillful to do that, it's not they've done something wrong and they try then to justify or defend themselves, which is what you do when someone says you're doing something wrong. You say it's unskillful to do this. They don't say you're unskillful, They don't say you're wrong and you're bad, say this one little action here is unskillful. So number one, you're not demeaning and attacking the person, because we're all proud. You're not telling a person you're wrong, you're hopeless, you're evil. You see what happens when they say that. Muslims are evil, or the West is evil, or sort of women are evil or whatever. I don't know what people say, but as soon as you say a whole group, is wrong or evil or bad, you can see what the response comes. So You never s- to the person, the act first of all. So the people receiving that, think it's not me, it's just you know, one little fault I have. It's, I'm not fundamentally wrong, I'm not basically flawed, I'm not evil and will go to some hell, it's just some act of mine. And number one, instead of saying it wrong, it's unskillful. Unskillful is a good word, which means you have the right goal in mind, but you're doing it the wrong way. Now your intention is okay, but your means to reach that goal is not a very good means. And that is far closer to the truth of people. Whether it's the Israelis, they want security for their country, whether it's the Palestinians, they just want a peaceful lifestyle. Whether it's the uh, Muslim community, they just want to be respected. Whether it's a Buddhist, they just want to you know, be able to meditate peacefully. Whatever you know, Buddhist wants. So what we want is, you know, it's all the same. It's all good things. It's how we go about trying to get what we want or get what is really right and proper in this world. It's the means which are unskillful. So it's a beautiful word the Buddha used, unskillful. So you never criticize a person, you never say they're wrong, you say, it's unskillful what you're doing. It's unskillful exploiting children, or making them join the army. Now straight away you can understand what that feels to a person listening to them. They're not being condemned, not their particular group are not being rejected. It's their actions, their goals, for whatever the reason they're doing this, are probably okay. You know, The major goal is creating peace or harmony in their villages or whatever, but the means is wrong. So let's look at the means and find another means, which is more skillful. And that becomes a much more effective way of fighting injustice. So if only our politicians could actually read that Arana Wibhanga Sutta, So we never go around criticising the Labour Party or the Liberal Party or the neocons or the communists or whatever. We don't criticise groups, we criticise actions or ideas, which are part of a person but not the whole. So the other people can actually listen, they can actually hear what we're saying. And when they hear what we're saying and contemplate it, if it makes sense, then they may have a more skillful action to follow. And of course the other way of writing injustice, which also gets people on side, is whenever you see an injustice, you'll always see that there's something else which that person or that group does, which is noble and good. I've never seen one person or one group of people in this world who are all bad. There is never a war which has got 1,000 bad bricks. Even in the worst world, there's always two or three good bricks, usually many more. I remember once going to one of the most notorious criminals I've ever met, as people are old enough to know, a guy called Ronnie Cray. He was one of the notorious Cray twins of East East London, and a uh, very notorious guy who was in the newspapers in England and because I was friend with one of these other monks in England who often goes to visit prisoners in jail, when I was visiting England he uh, took me around with him. So I went into Broadmoor which was the prison for the, the criminally insane. That's a pretty tough jail. These were the mental guerillas, you know, who would just sometimes attack you for no reason. And one of the prisoners in there was Ronnie Cray. So I went in to meet him, and said, oh hello, shake your hand, you know, very nice of you to come and visit me. And He turned around to the other one and he said, oh you want to get a few quid, I'll give a donation to your monastery. And there was actually a guy who wanted to actually to make some merit, and make some donations. And Probably, I don't know, maybe that none of you have ever put any money in the donation box, but he did. <laughs> and he was like a notorious killer. But actually what it showed to me was that just you know, all of these monsters, are no such thing as a monster, there's a person who's done a monstrous act. And they've always got a huge amount of goodness in them. Now when you're fighting injustice or confronting injustice, please don't just see the injustice, see there's something more in that person or that group. Because if you just see the injustice, you'll react to that person or that group. As if they are just need to be so sort of wiped off the face of this earth. People who don't deserve to live, people who deserve your anger, your revenge. Don't see the person. Don't even see the group. See the act. Which is why one of the problems, you know, when we had the the execution of that Vietnamese Australian in Changi Jail, Singapore, recently. I I don't think execution is right for any reason at all. But one of the reasons why the protests from Australia had hardly any moral value was because only now when it was an Australian about to be executed do we make a big fuss and bother. It was the person, not the act which we were focusing on basically. And obviously, you'd have a far more effect if you just, you know, the Australian people or the world said, no, execution is not wrong, but unskillful. In other words, what is the aim of the so the called justice system? It should not be to punish. Because punishment, you know, the setting of accounts, that's the job of karma or gods or something, not of human beings. Our job is not to be the punishers, you know, leave that to the law of karma or to be a Christian to God or to Allah or whatever. The job of human beings is obviously to protect our future, to rehabilitate that person as best we can. And if we have those two, protection and rehabilitation, if that's our aim, if especially if you're a Buddhist government, executing, it just means that when they get reborn again, they haven't learned anything. They come back again, still you know, the bad people or the, the uh, confused person. So if we have protection and rehabilitation, that's our aim. So we ask now, does execution fulfill the aims? Is it skillful in achieving the aims which you know, justice is supposed to serve? And When you say not right or wrong, but skillful and unskillful, it becomes much clearer know why, and if you agree with this, why execution, capital punishment doesn't work. It's unskillful. There's much better ways to achieve the ends. So this is actually some advice or some ideas of how, yeah as Buddhists we shouldn't just sort of sit there and allow injustices to happen. If it's at all possible we should try and get involved. I know many years ago now I started thinking of actually starting a Buddhist political party, but I thought after a while, I thought you know, it wouldn't work, because first of all, if it's a Buddhist party, you know, just like coming in here, we never charge anything to come in here. It's all run by donations. If a Buddhist party uh, won a majority in parliament in Australia, we would have no taxes. The whole country would run on donations or on food fairs. Which reminds me of an ad, we're having a food fair on April the 1st, isn't it? For the convention center. A convention uh, for the global conference on Buddhism, the global conference on Buddhism. So that's a little ad there. <laughs> so if we had a Buddhist party, we'd just have food fairs and donation drawings. <laughs> so I don't think it would work. Number two, you know, as far as the law is concerned, we're not Sharia law like you know, Mr. Costello was talking about. We'd have five precepts. So it asks the whole country to live by five precepts, which is also pretty un-Australian, according to... <laughs> so I don't think we'd get very far as a political party. The first four precepts would be okay, but for many Australians, the fifth precept would mean they would never vote for the Buddhist party <laughs> if we banned alcohol and beer. <laughs> but anyhow, even as such, especially Buddhist monks, I always think that Buddhist monks and any actually religious leaders, I think we should really stick at, stay out of politics, because like every footy game needs an umpire, every cricket game needs an, needs an umpire or or soccer game needs a referee. It's great having like religious people who don't align with any part, who stand back, who never criticise the party or the person, but criticize the acts, saying no, too many taxes are unskillful or not enough is unskillful, not looking after the kids at school, enough resources in education is unskillful. But we don't criticize this party or that party, we don't criticize that person or this person, we just focus on the acts. It's uncompassionate, unvirtuous, unskillful, that's as far as we go. And that gives you much more power to actually affect things in this world. You can be the people who stand behind, who not get involved in the politics of life, who give this like moral framework and guidance and help, so people can make these decisions which affect our world. And that was always the role of monks, that's why I never agree with monks getting involved in politics at all. Or why any religious leaders, whether it's archbishops or bishops or whatever, keep out and just allow yourself to give like the moral guidance. You know, to help other people, be the umpires, be the referees, but don't play for either side. So that way, that I think Buddhists can actually do a lot to help injustices in the world because it's got these great attitudes. We've got the law of karma, which means we don't have to have revenge. We've got the law of karma, which means that you know we are responsible It's not some god up there who decides what happens, you decide what happens, you're the creators of your world. God or Buddha never built my monastery, I did, I've still got the cuts and scars to prove it. (laughs) So you are the creator, so you can do something, but it's learning how to do it properly, to be effective. So to sum up some of the things I've said is, Oh, and the last thing I said is also like time and place. The Buddha said when you're admonishing another monk, or telling him off, choose the right time and place, whenever you're writing a social injustice, choose a time and place. Because sometimes you just got to wait, stop, it's not the right time, you won't be effective, sometimes you just make matters worse. It's just the same, if you want to tell your husband off, you know, because he's misbehaving or something, don't tell him off when he just comes back from the office after a hard day's work. And it's the wrong time. As the monks in my monastery have learnt, if they want to ask me for something special, they look at me and see if I'm being really busy or tired and they don't ask me that time. After I've had a nice lunch, they know what I like to eat, so they look, has he eaten that today? Wait till I've had my cup of tea, then they ask me anything, I always say, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> it's obvious, this is basic psychology, but we miss it every time at home. You know, we ask our wife for something, and then, you know, we look at your wife, first of all, is she in a good mood or a bad mood? Find out what she likes, if she's just seen a favourite movie on TV, then ask her, she always say yes. And it's the same if you're writing social injustices. You got to choose your time, if you're going to be effective. There are times when you realise you're wasting effort. At such times you just hold, hold still. But there are times when you can be effective. And it's the people who choose the right times. You know, like what did I think was Bob Geldof and did all those big Uh, What was it that, uh, because you don't watch TV, but you read the newspapers, he had, I don't know it was a Live Aid or whatever, but the recent one where he, just before the G8 meeting in Scotland somewhere, he had this big sort of concert worldwide, put pressure on these big leaders to try and reduce poverty in some of the very poorest countries of the world. His timing was perfect to do that. He timed it just before a big meeting to put huge moral pressure, international moral pressure on leaders. So you can see that the timing is so important, and this is exactly what the Buddha said. Before you admonish something, make sure it's the right time and place. When the other people, the people who are creating the problems, are in a position and are open to hearing what's being said. And trust the person will actually listen. If you criticize a person, you think it's your fault, you're an evil person, of course they won't listen. It has to come from mutual respect, and the respect is often from loving kindness, from some wisdom, seeing some good in the, the other person, and then you can talk to them, then they will listen, choose the right time and place. And then there's a much better chance that your message will get through, and people will change. So to sum up how we do Buddhist action, social action. Never out of revenge. Never allow another person to control your happiness. No matter what bad karma they do, you do not need to get angry back. If you do, you're allowing other people's bad actions to control and influence and infect you. Make sure that you are virtuous yourself, so you have the moral authority to actually to act in the world and you're doing something as bad or worse than the other people are doing. See if you can make sure that you have loving-kindness, so you respect and care for the other person. And To do that you have to see some of the good things in the other person, not just the terrible things they're doing in the world, but to see something noble and good, and there's always something noble and good in everybody, even in torturers and murderers. And Once you see that, you can have the loving-kindness. And when you do criticize, don't criticize them, the action, and never say right or wrong, skillful or unskillful. Say, I agree with our common goals but the way you're going about it is a better way. So you give them the other alternative but you choose your right time and place. A time when they're open to listening. You create that opportunity and then you can be effective in this world. And then you realise that it is part of our job as human beings, to serve our society. It's part of our job to sit quietly and develop ourselves. And that's actually part of helping society. This part, helping society, is part of actually meditating as well. I've seen in my life, if I just sit by myself and don't help anybody, I don't get enough oomph in my meditation. If you just go around helping other people, you just get tired and burnt out. When you get this balance of being kind to yourself and being kind to others, serving others and serving yourself, having a balance in your social action and your personal development, then you're actually doing something. You are progressing on the path of inner happiness for yourself and outer happiness in our world. You have to do this, because not all of you are going to get enlightened. Many of you are going to have to come back here. And you better get these social issues right. For all you men, if women are being exploited and you're not helping, next time you might be born a woman. (laughs) Your karma, you deserve that. (laughs) If you've been exploiting children, you're certainly going to be a child the next time. If you're not looking after the health system, and making sure that we got you know care even for the weakest members of our society next lifetime that might be you who's a child, maybe born in a remote community, an indigenous community who's got no health care. So it's a personal concern. Helping yourself, helping others, I find is exactly the same thing. Looked at from two different perspectives. So To be able to be effective, you see from my talk, you have to cultivate meditation. Cultivate yourself to give you the power to be effective. But don't just sit on your cushion. Once you have, develop yourself, help other people. Actually do the same at the the same time, as best you possibly can. But Remember those things, never criticize a person. The act, not right or wrong, skillful and unskillful. Kindness, right time and place, I think you can do a lot more. Too often social activists stuff up, they do become part of the problem, rather than the solution. So that's a Buddhist attitude to social action, to solving injustices in the world. We'll never complete the task, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. So that's the talk this evening. Thank you. So that's a new talk, off the cuff as usual. Has anyone got any questions about this talk? A nice subject which I don't think I've talked about before. Yes? You're asking, is it like a more sinister place now than than it was when I was a child? Uh, There were still paedophiles around when I was a child. I just was very fortunate not not to meet them. And when I was a child, you you could get caned, you could get beaten at school. And if you go earlier, because actually on the plane back from Bali a couple of days ago, obviously I'd never. Uh, took the headphones, but there was, I think, the film Oliver Twist. And I remember, like, the, the read the book Oliver Twist when I was uh, very young and just see what happened to him just you know, beaten mercilessly sometimes and completely abused, put in like workhouses. So, you know, if you go back a you know, hundred years, being a child then, if you weren't the child of some rich person, that was terrible stuff. So, it's not worse today than it's ever been. It's not the best today that it's ever been. It's always good in some areas, bad in other areas. It doesn't really change. Wanting to be more protective than ever, I think that yes, the reason why we're more protective to our children than ever is because we're more control freaks than ever. And this is the big problem of human beings these days. Because of technology, because of independence, because of wealth, we do have more means. And because we have more means, it gives us bigger egos, thinking we can control our world. We have been given more freedoms because of the advancement of our civilization, or the change of our civilization. Because we've got more means, we really got this delusion that we're in charge, we're in control. And because of that, we want to control our kids as well so you can't you know you can't control the kids, so kids will run away if you try and control them so the thing with my thing with kids is to trust them to give them trust, and you usually find that your children will live up to that trust in most cases, not always care but give freedom as well give trust. Is there any other questions we have? Okay, that's enough for this evening, it's just gone past nine o'clock. And thank you for the person who asked me that, uh, to give that talk. I hope that my talk uh, lived up to the uh, wonderful question which was asked, Buddhist attitude or response to social injustice.